When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, I'm Dr. Caroline Leaf and welcome to Cleaning Up the Mental Mess, a podcast where each week I discuss practical, simple and scientifically backed ways to help you take back control of your mental health, help others and ultimately live your happiest life. In this episode, I am interviewing Gretchen Rubin. Gretchen Rubin is one of today's most influential and thought-provoking observers of happiness and human nature. She's known for her ability to distill and convey complex ideas with humor and clarity in a way that's accessible to wide audiences. She's the author of many books, including the blockbuster New York Times bestsellers Out of Order, Inner Calm, The Four Tendencies, Better Than Before, and The Happiness Project. She has an enormous readership, both in print and online, and her books have sold over three and a half million copies worldwide, in more than 30 languages. On her top-ranking, award-winning podcast, Happier with Gretchen Rubin, she discusses happiness and good habits with her sister, Elizabeth Craft. She's also a CBS News contributor, Every Monday on CBS This Morning, the final Before We Go segment features her solutions and tips for living a happier, healthier, more productive life. She's been interviewed by Oprah, eaten dinner with Daniel Kahneman, walked arm in arm with the Dalai Lama, had her work written up in a medical journal, and been an answer on the game show Jeopardy. In her work, she draws from cutting-edge science, the wisdom of the ages, lessons from popular culture, and her own experiences to explore how we can make our lives happier, healthier, more productive, and more creative. In today's episode, Gretchen and I discuss what happiness actually is, what may be keeping you from finding happiness, how to break bad habits and build healthy new ones, tools that are essential for your anxiety and stress emergency kit, how to stop drifting through life, advice from what she's learned from people like Oprah, and so much more. Just before we start, I want to thank everyone again who's left a review, subscribed to this podcast, and shared it on social media with friends and family. Not only does your feedback help me improve each episode, but I also love seeing what you guys are learning and what key takeaways you have. It's so encouraging and exciting. And if you enjoyed today's podcast, please consider leaving a five-star review This information in this podcast is free. All I ask is that you share and subscribe. One more note before we begin. This interview was recorded remotely, so the audio quality may be a little scratchy in some areas. Now, back to today's episode. Another note before we begin. Many of you may be familiar with my 21-Day Brain Detox Program. Well, 
I am so excited to tell you about the new and improved version of this program, which is now available in my app, Switch. In this app, I guide you through the five steps that you do over 21 days. In this program, you will identify the root cause of whatever is causing that anxiety or depression or toxic thinking in your life and how to eliminate the root cause and how to build a healthy new neural network and thinking habit. This app recently went through clinical trials and the results have been astounding. And the science behind this program is backed by over 30 years of research. I'm also so excited because I'll be adding more and more specialized programs to this app and more amazing features like support groups and coaching. To download the app and start your brain detoxing journey, visit theswitch.app. You can also find the app in the iTunes App Store and Google Play. Just look for Switch on Your Brain. The link and details will also be in the show notes. Gretchen, I'm so thrilled to have you on my show today. I love your podcast. I love your Instagram. You have such a lot of very excellent and great information to share with people. Thank you for joining me. Well, I'm so happy to be talking to you. Thank you for having me. That's an absolute pleasure. Okay, before we dive into the questions, do you mind sharing a bit more about you, know, about you, things that aren't in your bio? How did you get where you are today and why you do what you do? Well, I'm from Kansas City, Missouri, and I actually started my career in law, and I was clerking for Supreme Court Justice Sandra Day O'Connor when I realized that actually I wanted to try to be a writer. Mm. So I went to the bookstore and got a book called something like How to Write and Sell Your Nonfiction Book Proposal and followed the directions. <laughs> I had an idea for what I wanted my first book to be, so I had to figure out, like, well, how does that world even work? Mm-hmm. And then I'd been writing for about 10 years when I got the idea to do my happiness project, which at first was going to be a happiness project just for me. I I was curious about, well, could I make myself happier? How would I make myself happier? And then I was so interested in that subject that I decided to write a book about it. And then I've basically been writing about happiness, good habits, human nature ever since. It's such an inexhaustible subject. So I write books about it. I have my podcast, Happier with Gretchen Rubin, about it. I write about it all the time on the internet and on social media. It's just this vast, fascinating subject that I have never come to the bottom of. Oh, I love that. And that's why I wanted you on the show to talk about this vast subject. So that's fantastic. So as you said, your work focuses mainly on happiness and good habits. So let's start with the happiness component. You know, how would you, because the whole happiness industry in this day and age, I'd love your take on, you know, what is happiness? What are people getting wrong about how to be happy? And, you know, what does it actually mean to live a happier life? Because I did start my career in law, I we spent like an entire semester arguing about the definition of contract and tort. And if anything, happiness is even more difficult to define. There's something like 17 academic definitions of happiness. So I never really try to explain what it is because I'm like, everybody can have a different view. It can be joy, peace, satisfaction, bliss, contentment, hedonic well-being, you know, whatever you want it to be. I love that. Yeah, because I think we can get really hung up on sort of arguing about definitions in a way that for lay people, I mean, scientists have to have their definitions, but I think for lay people, it's okay for us to have slightly different views about what that means. I think it's more helpful to think about how can I be happier? Whatever my view of what it would mean to be have a happy, meaningful, fulfilled life, 
those are some of the other synonyms people invoke. Mm-hmm. How could I be happier? You know, what could I do to be moving in the right direction? And when you say, well, what do people get wrong? I think that I think one thing that people get wrong is they think that there's one right answer, that there's mm-hmm. one best way, that there's one right way. And if it works for someone else, it should work for me. And if I want to exercise, I should get up early and do it first thing. And it's important for me to, you know, have a date night with my husband. And mm-hmm. and it's like, yeah, maybe, maybe not. I really find that we all have to figure out our own happiness project and we all have to begin by really thinking about what's true for us, our own interests, our own nature, our own temperament, our own values. And what would make one person's life happier is very different from what would make another person's life happier. There's certain themes about the kind of things that tend to make people happier, but there's certainly so many ways to achieve those aims. We all have to figure it out for ourselves. I think that's kind of our big challenge in life is to figure that out and how to pursue it. Oh, I love that. I absolutely love that answer. It's brilliant because it's basically removed the happiness, happiness concept from being a consumer product, which yeah. has almost become <laughs> into something that you actually have to work out for yourself. And I love the fact that you brought up, you know, like you've got to do this at this time and that at that time. And if you're not having a date night with your husband, your relationship's going to suffer kind of thing. The rules that we live by, that consumer product, and you just you just killed that myth in one sentence. So well done. I love your answer. Oh, that was brilliant. <laughs> that was so good. Okay. So there are some, let's talk about a little bit about barriers to happiness. Or even maybe before we do that, just pursue this individual search for happiness because you address this in your books and you've written a few bestsellers and amazing amazing books that i strongly recommend and we're going to put the links to your books in the show notes but uh, you know just maybe talk a little bit more about take this what you've just said a little deeper in terms of the individualized search for what happiness means for you well when you look at sort of you know, what are some of the big elements that tend to make people happier? So you would say relationships. I mean, ancient philosophers and contemporary scientists agree that a key to happiness and maybe the key to happiness is strong relationships with other people. Mm -hmm. We need to feel like we belong. We need to have intimate, enduring bonds. We have to be able to uh, get support. And just as important for happiness, we need to be able to give support. We need to feel we need to feel that connection. But for different people, that's very different. So mm. one person might really want to have coffee with one friend and have a quiet, intense conversation. Someone else thrives on a big party and loves to mm. ha- hospitality and wants lots, you know, a huge dining room table with people up and down. And that's mm. how they get their energy and their satisfaction. And again, it's not that there's a right way and a wrong way, but that for everyone, it's like you need it in some way. For some people, it's interesting to me, animals are very important to some people. Some people just have this sort of sense of loneliness if they don't have like that dog or even like less conveniently that horse. Mm. Some people really feel that deep bond with animals and that's a kind of companionship that they really crave. Other people don't feel that way. So you can say, well, the big idea is relationships, but then for each of us, it's like, what are the ways that you would pursue that relationship? And then there's sort of principles that I think are helpful. Like one thing is that relationships take time and energy. And so often the reason we don't pursue relationships or don't maintain them is because we're really, really busy. So it's hard to see Mm. your friends if you're working and have a family, or it's hard to see your family if everybody's spread out across the country. It's just, there's a lot of decisions. There's a lot of coordination. There's kind of just a lot of 
just kind of effort that goes into it. So then mm-hmm. you can say, well, there's some ways that you could make it easier. So one way, like, let's say if your big family spread out, maybe you have a standardized vacation. Like my sister and I, she lives in Los Angeles. I live in New York. So for many years, we had this thing where every president's weekend, we would get together with our two families. So then you didn't have to think, when are we going to get together? Mm. This weekend, my free It's like, no, that's our weekend. And if, of course, if there was a conflict, we could have worked it out. But if you know in advance that you don't want to have a conflict, then you can just sort of hold it. And it just made it a lot easier to coordinate. Or that's one reason I think people love book groups or things like that. It's sort of mm-hmm. like, this is a group. If you miss a couple, that's okay. You'll see everybody mm-hmm. next time. Maybe we meet the first Monday of every month. So then I just have it on my calendar that mm-hmm. drops all the decision fatigue related to it. And so then it's easier to follow through. Oh, I love that. So the big picture down to what works for you down to some basic principles and the principles, one of them that you say is, you know, like, as you say, set a time, have some kind of plan, but it's a plan that can be flexible. And that's, yes. that's great. We have four kids and they all grown up and two are married and also live across the country. And my husband and I travel all over the place with, with the work that I do. And it's the same thing. We always have an annual family holiday and it's been a tradition in our family that our kids choose the holiday. So it's been quite fun as they've got older. They tell us where they want to go every year and we, and we set everything up around that, you know, that annual holiday. And it's become such a exciting tradition. We start planning it at the beginning of the year, but it's a great way of, as you say, a great principle to take that decision fatigue away. So good. Well, and then as you say, then you can anticipate it and then you get more happiness out of it because it's like if you planned it like a month in advance, it could still be as fun. But this way you have a whole year of being like, oh, where should we go? And this was this will be so fun. And maybe I convince everybody to do this. It's like you build up that anticipation. People can kind of count on it. And so then you sort of eke more happiness out of the same experience, which is great. You know, you want to have as much happiness out of what you're doing as you can. I love what you just said there. You can actually, the anticipation allows you to eke more happiness out of this. That's amazing. It's, it's such a simple, but such a healthy thing. And, and as a, I mean, I'm a brain researcher and that just does such good stuff in your brain. So that mind decision is making amazing changes in your brain that increase your resilience. So that's really very, very, very good practical advice. I like that statement you made. So amazing. So what would you say on the flip side would be, some of the common barriers to happiness? Well, I think one thing, I think a lot of these things people know, it's mm-hmm. it's not really a question of education, it's more a question of like, you know, really doing something about it, which is why I wrote my book better than before, because what I realized is a lot of times people would know that they needed to get more sleep, or they know they would be happier if they read more, or they know mm-hmm. they would be happier if they spent more like one-on-one time with their children or whatever, but the problem, or quit sugar, But the problem was execution, which was often a problem of habit formation. So that's what got me really into habits. Because I think think one thing is the body. Like, I think a lot of times people sort of, you know, they don't think about how much their physical experience will contribute to their emotional experience. Mm -hmm. And I know for me, like... I really need to get enough sleep and I really can't let myself get hungry and I really can't let myself get too cold and I really need to make sure that I have enough time in solitude because I need a lot of solitude. And one of the things I, Elizabeth and I have talked about this on the Happier Podcast mm-hmm. is treat yourself like a toddler, which is when you have a toddler, like you're like that toddler needs a hat and that toddler needs a snack and that toddler needs a nap. Mm-hmm. And I know that if I don't get that toddler, like it's going to be an explosion. 
And so treating yourself like a toddler, sort of like respect your body and what you need. And you are going to have, and I think part of it is when we're exhausted or frazzled, then it's hard to do all the things that would make us happier. Like, oh yes, it would be fun to plan this family holiday, but I'm so exhausted that I can't face the work that it would require. Even though I know, know that in the end, I would get happier from it and I would get energy from it. I can't even plan it. I just can't even face it. I can't answer another email. And so I think one thing is people just, they treat their body like a car they're driving around without realizing like, no, your body, you know, my body is me. I got to think about my body. And I think another thing is people, it's the whole problem of the urgent driving out the important. And people often talk about this in a work context where it's like you work on, you answer your email instead of working on the project that's due at the end of the month because your email is sort of like right in front of you Mm. and it feels more urgent. But then I think that's also true in life where it's like, okay, I know I would be happier if I took the time to stay in touch with my college friends, but I'm just managing the birthday party I have to take my kid to tomorrow. I don't have time to think about that kind of bigger mm-hmm. thing. One thing I've noticed is things that can be done at any time are often done at no time. Mm-hmm. And so sometimes these things which are like, well, at any time I could email my college friends and say, hey, let's try to get together that I never do. But the birthday party is on Saturday, so I have to deal with the birthday party. So again, it's the urgent driving out the important. Oh, that's brilliant. So the the one is the execution. I love that. And that's, as you say, I mean, you can, there's so much information out there about how to eat, how to look after yourself, etc. There isn't a lot of information about helping people to actually make the choices to execute. And that's the world I move in. I do a lot of work in mind management as opposed to, I know, you know, that you shouldn't have sugar, as you just said, but that's, that's the execution side. So I absolutely love that. That's so vital. So I'm very pleased you raised that point. And then that urgent versus what's in your face and what you should be doing. Yeah. And so what do you advise people? How do you advise people to deal with those barriers? I think part of it is, I mean, there's kind of fun ways to get around this. Like one thing that we talk about on the happier podcast is like to make your 20 for 20 list or like, you know, we made a list of 19 things for 2019. So in 20 for 20, it's like all the things that you kind of like want to put, make on a list that maybe Mm -hmm. wouldn't otherwise appear on a list. And people often will send me their list. And so I've seen hundreds of people's lists. And often it is things like plan a vacation, take my child to this kind of special place, visit 10 different restaurants in my hometown. It's like a lot of these things Mm -hmm. are the kind of thing that you know would be so fun and would make you happier. Mm. And yet, like, it's not appearing anywhere. And so it's never getting done. So it's like, well, make a list where that thing can go. And and you can kind of say, well, I want to do it in 2020. That gives me a lot of flexibility. But on the other hand, it gives me a little bit of a deadline. So I don't run into this thing like, well, there at any point I could go, like, I've never been to the Statue of Liberty. I live in New York City. Mm-hmm. I've lived here, you know, a mm-hmm. long time. I could go anytime. I could go this afternoon after I stopped talking to you. Mm-hmm. Am I going to go? No. Why? Well, I could go anytime. So mm-hmm. maybe I need to say, like, visit the Statue of Liberty. And then it's like, okay, at some point, I know that I want to make that happen. So that's just mm-hmm. kind of a fun, playful way to do it. But I do think people are very different. This sort of led me to my personality framework, the four tendencies, mm-hmm. which really describes how people are very different in how they like to approach that kind of item. Some people in my framework like really need outer accountability. Some people don't really need outer accountability. Mm. Some people really like to act spontaneously. They like to do what they want. They don't like to have something on a list. They don't like to have accountability. They don't like having the feeling that somebody's mm-hmm. looking over their shoulder. 
And so with the four tendencies, it kind of explains, again, back to what we were talking about before, about how it's really individual. The four tendencies explain like, well, maybe you're going about this in a way that's not really mm-hmm. right for you. And you're, you know, there's upholders, questioners, obligers, and rebels, and they're extremely different in how they would execute. That's really good. That, that that was one of the questions I wanted to ask you. So I'm really glad you brought that up because I think it's very, very useful. And it almost frees people to, it's okay, work out your own way because there's so much out there about you've got to do it this way to be a success, you know, and that's, it's put so much pressure on people. Yes. Let me tell you about my secret weapon for learning new things and getting ahead. It's called Blinkist. Blinkist takes the best key takeaways, the need to know information from thousands of non-fiction books and condenses them down into just 15 minutes that you can read or listen to. I love Blinkist because in less than 15 minutes, I feel like I can fast track my path to a more intelligent and informed and healthy me. I use Blinkist as part of my daily brain building morning routine, which helps really boost my mental health throughout the day. Right now, for a limited time, Blinkist has a special offer just for our audience. Go to Blinkist.com slash Dr. Leaf. Try it free for seven days and save 25% off your new subscription. The link will be in the show notes. I love your toddler example. I just wanted to come back in on that. That was brilliant because people don't, you know, then they do. They, we get, I get so much in the work I do, and I know you must as well, that people are just so exhausted and burnt out because they're not addressing those very, very basic needs. Like you said, you need the solitude. You don't want to get hungry. You don't want to get cold. I mean, those are such basic things. But if you address those, you don't yes. feel so exhausted and you feel like you can actually handle so much more. So that's a really good practical tip. And, and that's something I've noticed about your podcast. I love how your podcast, your books, even today, I, I mean, I was looking at, I was, I was actually listening to your podcast last night about the emergency kit for worry, anxiety and stress. And I see you posted on that today. So I love that about your podcast and books, how you give such practical and simple tips. Because it's not like you're telling people do this, but you put ideas in people's minds and then people, oh, I could do something like that. You know, that's really great. Can you share some of your favorite tips on how to break bad habits and build good habits? That is a very big question. It is. Um, and you can, you yes. can answer that however you want. <laughs> okay. Well, well so in, in Better Than Before, my book about it, I identify 21 strategies that we use to make or break our habits. And sometimes people are like, 21 is too many. Give me the big three. But as we've been saying, like, it's so individual. And some of these 21 strategies work really well for some people and not very well for others. Some are available to us at some times of our lives and not at other times. There are a few strategies, however, that work for pretty much everyone. So, And they're very familiar to us because they're so powerful. There are sort of two strategies that are twins, which are the strategies of convenience and inconvenience, which is there's research, and I'm sure you know this research, mm-hmm. well, hilarious research about how we are so much more likely to do something if it's even like the teensiest, tiniest bit more convenient and less likely to do if it's less convenient. Mm-hmm. Like they've done research about like there's a salad bar. If people are using tongs instead of a spoon, they take less food because it's just that much harder to use a tong to get something than it is spoons. So, so interesting. Mm-hmm. So you can use this with habit formation by making things that you want yourself to do to be as easy as possible 
And conversely, anything you don't want yourself to do to make it inconvenient. So, for instance, mm. let's say I'm, I'm starting a new job and I could join a gym that's right across the street from my office or I could join one that's a little bit less expensive that's like three blocks away. Still close. Mm. Still well within walking distance. Well, if I can afford it, I should do the one that's right across the street because just having it be that much more convenient is probably going to really help me stick to it. Same thing with inconvenience. Like a thing with a lot of people do with their phones is they're like, why can't I stay off my phone? And then they walk around with it in their back pocket. It's like, no, you're not going to stay off your phone. It's like, mm-hmm. if you don't put it in your briefcase on a high shelf in a closet and shut the door. Mm, and one. if you get sticky and sweaty because you just need your phone, you can go get it, but it's just inconvenient. Or like put the remote control of the television in a really inconvenient spot. Like you got to run up a flight of stairs to go get it before you turn on the TV. You can't just flick it on. Or if there's food that you really want, don't keep the ice cream in your, you know, just right there in your freezer, but maybe you tie it into a freezer bag and put it in, like if you have a freezer in your garage or your basement. Mm -hmm. So it's a hassle to go get it because we're so susceptible to convenience and inconvenience. Another trick that works for a lot of people, and it's a very fun one, is pairing. So pairing Mm -hmm. is when you take something, that you like to do or that you really want to do with something that you want to encourage yourself to do. So for instance, when I was in college, I paired taking a shower with going to the gym. So I could only shower on a day when I had gone to the gym. And so I could go a day, I could go a couple of days without taking a shower, but like at a certain point, I really wanted to take a shower, so I had to go to the gym. Or it's like, let's say you have a podcast that you love. It's like, I can only listen to this podcast like while I'm out for my walk. Maybe I'm commuting. Can I listen to my favorite podcast? No. Maybe I'm folding laundry. Can I listen to my favorite podcast? No. I'm cooking. I'm unloading the dishwasher. No, no, no. That podcast is only for when you're on your walk. Or like my sister loves The Real Housewives. She only watches them when she's on the treadmill. Mm. So that's a way it makes it more fun. And it just becomes something that you just like you find yourself doing it because there's this other activity that you really want to do. That And it's sort of it is also playful. And I think for some people, that element of playfulness makes something much more attractive. I love that. You know, as you're speaking and you said playful, I suddenly realized I had a big smile on my face while you were talking. So it had that immediate effect. Just your suggestions had that immediate effect that made me feel, oh, I can do this. You know, that's, <laughs> that's, that made me smile, you know. So I got that reaction as you were speaking. So that's really great. I love that. As I mentioned, you talked about anxiety, worry, stress, yep. the emergency kit. You posted about that today as well. Do you want to talk about because you give some great, I think, what's it, 16, 16 tip, emergency kit. I love it. So, yeah, we did a whole episode devoted to this because it's such a common issue. Exactly. So one of the things that seems to resonate most with people, well, first is to make a write down. And this is especially effective if you have like racing thoughts in the middle of the night, because once you wrote it down, sometimes your brain is like circling, trying to make sure that something important isn't forgotten. And when you memorialize it on paper, then the brain is like, okay, that's, we've got that. I don't need to keep reminding, you know, because this is recorded. And so that can help if you feel like you, you kind of can't let go of something. Yeah, I want to emphasize what you just said for the listeners, because that is seriously what you're doing. You're actually taking it out of your, if you don't write it down, for example, you just keep it circling, you actually put your brain into such incredible stress and you yeah. you act, you act wake up waves in your brain that actually need to calm down so you can sleep and you, you do the exact opposite. So by writing it down, you do that. You change the whole wave frequency in your brain and you externalize it and it makes it more able to be controlled. So there's a whole bunch of brain science behind what you just yeah. said. So well done. 
Oh, good. Well, also my sister, one of our listeners sent my sister this special pen that you can get that has light that isn't the blue light that wakes you up. And so if you are waking up, you know, getting up and writing it down, this pen means that you don't have to like, because every time you turn the ah. lights on, it wakes up your brain. So this is kind of a very dim way. So you can see enough to write it down, but you're helping your brain like slip back into sleep. I love that. Yeah. Another one, and this is funny, is to schedule time to worry. And so mm-hmm. for people who feel like they're constantly distracted by worried thoughts, if you're sort of like, you know what, I'm, and you don't want to do this right before bed, if you're like, okay, from 11 to 11.45 every day, I'm just going to worry, or maybe once a week is enough, and I'm just, that's what I'm going to worry. And so then if I feel myself starting to worry about something and just kind of that circling, ruminating worry, I think, you know what, I'm just going to wait and do it all in one time. And so I don't have to think about it now. I'm going to do it then. A lot of people, my sister has this very much, has this very, like a superstitious belief that by worrying about something, she, like if she worries about a negative outcome, she somehow makes it less likely to happen. So she almost feels like she has a duty to worry. Now, she recognizes that this is not true. It's not rational. And yet it's hard for her to kind of let go of this. And so by scheduling time to worry, she's like, don't worry, I'm going to worry about that. I'm gonna, and, and, but then it's by also by scheduling it. It's like, you're there, you've got a piece of paper, you can write it down. If you're like, what are some things I could do? Because another thing is that action is the antidote to anxiety. And so a lot of times if I'm worried about something, like let's say, I'm worried about what is my daughter going to do this summer? Well, it's like I can worry about that or I can actually send emails to friends for ideas and start doing a little bit of Internet research and, you know, call somebody I know who has a kid a couple years older and find out what that child did. There are actions that I can take that would help bring that worry down. And so I think, you know, trying to change that into action can be very helpful because then you're you're sort of like, oh, I don't have to worry about it so much because I know I'm starting to tackle it and starting to address mm. it. I love it. That's so great. I mean, this is, you talk about this as being an emergency kit. And when I listen to your podcast and I see your post, you've said the emergency kit for worry, anxiety, and stress. So these are really super 16, nice, simple, practical, very scientific, by the way, all these things are very established in the scientific literature. So it's really great. So can you tell us more about them? Like the maybe reaching others for support or finding a distraction? Yeah. Go ahead. Well, it's interesting about distraction because I think right now distraction has kind of a bad rap because we think of ourselves as being distracted when we don't want to be. Like I'm trying to read a novel and I'm distracted by my phone. But distraction is all, when we use it mindfully, it's a very, very powerful tool. Mm. And so like I remember when my daughter was first born, she was in the intensive care unit because she was born so small and I was just spinning out. Like I was just, I was exhausting myself with worry and I wasn't leaving. And my husband was like, we're going to go to a movie because you need a break. And I didn't want to do it. But then having two hours of distraction was so energizing to me, giving myself that break. And then also with things like cravings, because a lot of times people are like, I really want this ice cream. And if I don't eat this ice cream, I'm just going to want it more and more and more. And I'm going to be kind of overwhelmed with this craving. But research shows that cravings kind of diminish if time goes by you sort of you know on their own and by distracting yourself a lot of times you really just you just you're thinking about something else you don't even notice Mm. it and then sometimes you can often distract yourself in ways that will really pump you up like listening to some of your favorite music it's one of the quickest easiest most popular ways to intervene in mood and so if I'm feeling really worried about something that I can't control maybe I'll pull out my phone and listen to one of my favorite upbeat songs and that's going to 
remind me of like that great vacation that I took. And so that's going to distract me and that's going to give me that mental break. Now, often worry and stress are helping us to focus our attention on something that needs attention. Mm -hmm. But at a certain point, that becomes fruitless, especially if there's nothing to be done about it at this point, which often the things that we worry about are things that we can't really control or affect, or, or at least not at all times. And there's kind of that rumination too, where, okay, maybe I said something that I wish I hadn't said, and I just can't stop thinking about it. It's mm-hmm. like, okay, you know, I said I was sorry, done is done, move on, but I can't move on. So what do I do? Well, if I distract myself, maybe that'll help me get over it and move forward. Oh, that's so good. I love that. I love that you've actually just given a, another angle on distraction. It's so important. You you put one of the other ones that I really like as well is beware of catastrophizing. Yeah, that's a good one. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, and you have to catch yourself in it. But catastrophizing is when you just take everything to the furthest extreme. So it's like my boyfriend's mad at me and that means that we're going to break up and that means I'm never going to have a life partner and I'm going to die alone. It's like, what? How'd you Mm. get there? Or I missed this deadline and now my literary agent's going to be furious with me and then I'm going to lose her respect. And then what if she drops me as a client? Where did you get that? You know what I mean? Like, so part of it is just trying to stay very realistic on what actually happened because a lot of times And one of the things that's so striking to me is a lot of times we think we know what other people are thinking or why they're doing what they're doing. Okay, I sent an email. This person hasn't answered me. Are they mad at me? Did I offend them? I'm just like, oh, maybe that person's traveling and their Wi-Fi is down. Maybe Mm. that person's dealing with a family emergency and is just like doing triage on their email. Maybe that person's just bad at responding to email and I've never emailed that with them before. So I don't know that it always takes them five days to get back to anybody. I'm catastrophizing, I'm mind reading, I'm thinking that I know what's going on, when in fact, I have no idea what's going on. Mm. So it's sort of like, wait and find out or ask, but rather than sort of leaping to the worst possible conclusion. Oh, I love that. That's so good. Richard, you talk about in number nine, identify the problem, what exactly is the source of your anxiety, often we only have a vague sense. And I really love that because the work that I've done in mind brain research for 30 years now the result of that is I've developed techniques and things like all of us scientists do and therapists and so on. And I have it in an app called Switch. And it's basically, it's a mind management process. And one of the main elements is to identify the problem, that we need to use these emotional and physical warning signals and all that kind of stuff to get to the base. So I'm really excited when I saw that in your number nine. Can you talk about how you see this identifying the problem and what's the source and the importance of that? Well, this was something that I really spotted in myself as sort of something that I was doing wrong, which was sometimes I would worry about something, but I would characterize it very vaguely. Like I would be like, oh, I'm so stressed about my book coming out, or I'm worried about what we're going to do this summer, or I'm feeling so far behind, or the problem is that doesn't have any information because, or like a friend of mine said, well, I'm so stressed about work. Well, you're stressed about work. Is that because you have too much work because your department has downsized and you're doing the work of three people? Are you stressed because you have conflict with your boss? Are you stressed because you have no friends at work? Are you stressed because you feel like the work is meaningless? So you feel like your life has no value? Are you stressed because you don't have good tools? Are you stressed because you have to give a public presentation and you're scared of public speaking? Are you stressed because you have a terrible commute, which has nothing to do with the actual work, but has to do with kind of the logistics of your workday? Those are all different reasons that a person could feel anxious or stressed or worried. But when you just think like, I'm stressed about work, it doesn't help you figure out 
how could you address it? And when you say something like, I'm really stressed out because I'm having a lot of conflict with my boss. Well, then that tells you something about what to think about and what possible, how you might think about moving forward. I had a friend, I mean, this is such a funny example, but I had a friend who really hated her job, thought she was going to quit law. She was a lawyer in Washington, D.C., which has terrible traffic. And when she really pushed herself to figure out what was wrong, it was really her commute. She hated her commute, so she started listening to audiobooks, and it dramatically transformed her life. And she realized it was mm-hmm. it had nothing to do with her job as a lawyer. She had just sort of been so vague in her dislike of her days that she wasn't even clear about what was causing it. So identifying the problem can make it a lot easier to see what how to address something. Oh, you explained that brilliantly. I absolutely love that. So practical and so real and actually quite simple if you think of it. Yes, it is. And it kind of also gives you a feeling of control in that it's like it's not the problem is not as big as I thought it was. Also, one of the things about identifying the problem is sometimes like maybe you don't even have the problem you thought you have because like a lot of people think, oh, I don't spend any time with my children. I work all the time. I come home. I don't spend any time with my children. But when they actually look to see, well, is that really a problem? How much time are you actually spending like one on one with your children? When people monitor it, they see actually, I'm not doing so bad, especially compared to kind of like 30 years ago. It turns out adults spend a lot more time with children than you might think. So identifying the problem can give you a lot of great information too. I love that because you just also by identifying the problem, you control the catastrophizing, which is what that example of your children. And then also you find things like they're actually more interested, children are more interested in quality than quantity anyway. So you start becoming more realistic. I love it. I love what you're saying. Sometimes it's just so hard to get all the essential nutrients and vitamins your brain and body needs. That's why supplements can be a great option, but there are just so many out there and it can be confusing and overwhelming. Trust me, I know. So I did some research. Well, actually, a lot of research because that's what I do. And I came across Ritual. Ritual is the obsessively researched vitamin for women. Ritual's essentials have the nutrients most of us don't get enough of from food, all in their clean, absorbable forms. For me personally, I love how Ritual values transparency. For obsessive label readers, all of Ritual's vegan-friendly, sugar-free, non-GMO, gluten-free and allergen-free ingredients and their sources are out there for the whole world to see. It's so important for me to know what I am putting into my body. And right now, Ritual is offering my listeners 10% off during your first three months. Visit ritual.com forward slash Dr. Leaf to start your ritual today. The links will be in the show notes as well. Just on that track, it it makes sense to maybe talk about just very briefly about number 12, start tracking. If you're worried about a physical symptom or a pattern of behavior, start keeping a record. I really like that one. Well, this is really important because a lot of times you're worried about something, but like, let's say I have a symptom and it's worrying me and finally I go to the doctor and they say like, well, how long have you been experiencing the symptom? I don't know about you, but like, I have no sense of time. I will just make something up two weeks, a month. I have no Mm -hmm. idea. Or like maybe like you pull a muscle and you're like, how this is taking forever to get better. But when you track it, you're like, really, it's been eight days. Mm. That's how it feels like forever. Or like you're worried about something about your child. Like, oh, my child really seems reluctant to go to school. Now, is there really a problem at school or is this just sort of like a passing thing? If I track it, then I can have a sense of like, well, is this? 
turning out to be a really big problem? Is it not turning out to be a big problem? If I need to address it, I will have a lot more information to whoever it is that I'm consulting with. I can look for patterns like, oh, now I'm noticing maybe I experience this every time we come back from vacation. Well, that's a pattern that tells me about myself that maybe I wouldn't have picked up that pattern if I didn't keep a record of it. And then also, I think it is the idea of action being the antidote to anxiety. Sometimes if you're like, okay, I'm just going to write down my symptoms and keep track of them, that makes you feel like, okay, well, I've sort of got a handle on this. It makes you feel more comfortable as you're waiting for maybe uncertainty to resolve itself. This is brilliant. You're so good at making things very simple and accessible. And that in itself, as you're talking about those things, that could, that could be very anxiety-provoking. You actually doing those simple things, you're talking to people to calm down. It's really fantastic. I love it. Okay, so I'm an avid reader and a big believer in the power of books and building your brain through reading, which can actually dramatically improve mental health as well. I'm not sure if you're aware of that, but it's one of the best ways of improving mental health is building your brain through reading. So what are some tips for people who want to read more but struggle to stay focused? Oh, that is such a great question. I love to read. And one of the things that's when I wrote better than before, one of the things that was interesting to me is how many people said they wanted the habit of reading more because I sort of thought, well, people either like to read, in which case they read, or they're not that interested in reading, which is why they don't read. But actually, a lot of people want to read more. So I think this is a really important question because a lot of people, they do want to read more. Mm. So one thing that I do is if a book is boring to me, I stop. And I think a lot of people have an idea like a real reader should finish or once you start, you should read to the end. But that actually makes reading a lot less fun because then you're stuck finishing books that you don't like. If you stop reading a book, if you lose interest, then you have more time to read books that you want. And so then it's more fun because I think we've all experienced when you're reading a book that you truly love you find all kinds of time to read it. You don't have trouble focusing. Mm, you know, so you're true. like, oh my gosh, I want this book. And so I think part of this also is be honest about what you feel like reading. There are times when all of us need to read something. I read a huge amount for work. I'm sure you do too. Mm -hmm. And some of these books are sort of fascinating in one way, but they're not really like compelling reads. Mm -hmm. But we all need time where we're just purely reading something that we love. And I think sometimes people treat it like spinach and they're like, if I'm going to read, I should read this important <laughs> book of foreign policy. It's like if you feel like reading a mystery or you feel like rereading a book, I love to reread. Some people feel like that's not right. I'm like, of course it's right. Of course it's right to reread a book. Anything's right. If I may interrupt you there, there's no rules for reading a book as long as you're reading. Yes, exactly. Right. One thing that's funny that I've noticed, this is true for me, and many people have said the same thing, is that when you check books out of the library, because you know they have to be returned, it mm -hmm. keeps you faster because you're like, ooh, I got this, like, even it's kind of without thinking of it, you're like, ooh, I've got to get through this by a certain time. So I find that I do move through books more quickly when they're checked out of the library. And also the nice thing about the library is you can be very indiscriminate in what you pick. I will pick a book because I like the title. I will pick a book because somebody randomly mentioned it to me because I can just like, if I don't like it after 10 pages, I just return it to the library. Whereas if I'm buying a book, I feel like I really only buy it if I really think that I'm going to want to read it. So that's a higher standard. And so I sort of like the library it lets you be kind of take bigger risks in reading. Another thing is always to have a book with you. You know, like there's nothing worse than you're like, wow, I was stuck in this line for a half an hour and I could have read a good chunk of that book, but I didn't stick it in my bag. And so I'm just here like with this time that I could have used to a book. So really to always have something with you to read, I think is good. Reading is fun. It's the mm -hmm. most, fun. I think it's the most fun you can have. Mm -hmm. And so 
when you read for fun, you really want to read. I stayed home from work one time to finish reading Stephen King's book, The Stand, because I just <laughs> couldn't stop reading it. That's <laughs> and that's like, a good feeling. Oh, I, I love what you just said. It's so important. I mean, our kids grew up on reading. They'd always carry books around. They still carry books around. And when I was practicing, I used to tell parents, you know, it's you want to do something for your kids? Read, read, read. Let them fall in love with books. I mean, my kids grew up in libraries. I still love libraries. My kids love libraries. They're just those really special places. And that's, you know, as parents, you can you can teach this love of reading. And I see, I think you get up at 5 o'clock in the morning or something and you, you have a reading time. Is that something that you... That's a friend of a friend of mine. It works in publishing. And one of the kind of ironic things about being in publishing is that you spend so much time reading books that you have to read for work or books that are being edited and things that you have very little time to read for fun. So he gets up at five o'clock oh, every okay. day to have an hour where he's truly reading for fun. And I have another friend who was a morning person and he said to me, I'm really a morning person. And at other times in my life, I would get up at six, maybe even five in the morning. And I loved it. But lately, like last couple of years, I haven't been doing that and I don't know why. And when I talked to him, it, it turned out that he was thinking, well, if I get up early, I can kind of start my day sooner. I can start working. I can kind of get a jump on everything I need to get done. Well, that doesn't sound like that much fun, right? Mm -hmm. Like, I don't, mm -hmm. am I going to get out of my cozy bed and like run to my, do my work email? No. So I said, well, why don't you start the day with something fun? Something that you would really look forward to because you do like this early morning time. So maybe you just need to use it in a different way. And he had told me that he wished that he had more time to read. So now he gets up early and like makes a cup of coffee and sits in his favorite chair and reads a great book. And then he says it's great because he feels like he starts his day almost with like this illicit treat. It's sort of like, ooh, out of mm. like my busy work day, I've grabbed this time for myself. And so it's a healthy treat and that it really makes them happier. It's not like an extra glass of wine or, you know, mm -hmm. another brownie, but it's still that feeling of like, Ooh, you know, I'm doing something just because it's really fun. And it feels like, Ooh, I, and I grabbed this time out of my day, but you know, it came out of nowhere because he was just lying in bed, listening to the radio. That's so good. And that's such a good, healthy brain habit. It's a good mind habit. It's doing so many good things. It's fun. It's just that the transition, if you do it in the morning, the transition from waking up to getting into your day, it's so important that you do it with something that is positive like that. So yeah. that's just wonderful. And in this day and age when people don't read enough, especially kids, it's really important that we rekindle that love of books and reading. So I'm very glad that you focus in on that a lot. It's wonderful. You talk about the problem of drift. Can you talk about what this is and why it's a problem and how not to be a drifter? Well, Drift is when we make a decision by not deciding or by sort of following the path of least resistance. So you get married because all your friends are getting married or you become a doctor because both your parents are doctors or you take a job because somebody offers you that job. And I drifted into law school, so I'm very aware of this. I was, I was like, well, I don't really want to be a lawyer, but I'm good at research and writing. I did well on the LSAT you know, admissions exam. Mm -hmm. I can keep my options open. I can change my mind later. But the problem with drift is that sometimes it works out. And so that can be confusing because sometimes people drift into things and they're very happy. And so you think, oh, well, maybe things just always work out. But a lot of times drift doesn't work out because a lot of times when we're drifting, we're really meeting somebody else's idea of what we should be or what we ought to do. So I become an accountant because my parents think it's a really safe job and it's better to be an accountant than it is to be an artist because how do you know you're going to be able to make a living as an artist? So you should be an accountant. 
And because I don't really know what I would do to be an artist, I'm like, I drift into accounting. But mm. then after a certain time, a lot of times if people drift into things, a lot of times they burn out or they lose interest or it's hard for them to succeed because they don't have any, you know, people who love what they do bring an energy and an intensity to it that it's, you really cannot match. And this was one mm. of the things I was in law. I was in law. I was clerking for Justice Sandra Day O'Connor. So I had a very like good, you know, mm -hmm. I had a very respectable job. But looking around, everybody else, like, they loved law. They were talking about law during the lunch hour and in their free time. They were, like, reading law journals for fun. They loved talking about it. And I thought, I'm here now, but I cannot go the distance the way these people can go the distance because they love it in a way that I don't love it. And they will be good at it in a way that I don't think I could be good at it because I just don't bring that intensity. I wanted to do a really, really good job from Justice O'Connor. And I did do a really good job mm -hmm. for Justice O'Connor, but I didn't do one extra thing. And over time, mm -hmm. I was like, yeah, you know, and so I was like, I need to get someplace where I remember I was talking to a friend who was in education graduate school at the time. And she had this very, what I thought was a very boring looking dry textbook. And I said to her, oh, do you have to read this for your program? And she said, yeah, but that's the stuff I read on my own anyway. And I thought, that's what I want. I want a job. Uh. What I do for my living is what I would do in my free time. Like, and now that's one thing I talk about with my sister. We love to talk shop. Both of us love to talk shop. Like I have friends where I know, I don't even really know anything about their personal lives because I just talk shop with them. Mm, and I'm that's so, so happy. Funny. And so drift can work out, but it often doesn't work out. And it's very important to realize when you are drifting, when you're just allowing yourself to be drifting because of sort of external pressure. And the funny thing about drift is the word drift kind of has these overtones that it's very kind of lazy or mm -hmm. it's the way. But in fact, talking to people about drift, drift is often incredibly hard. I know so many people who drifted into medical school. Mm. School is so demanding. And yet it's like people are going there because they're like, eh, what else am I going to do? I'm really good at biology and math and, you know, everybody always said I'd be a great doctor and I don't really know what else I would do. So I'm going to do it. It's not like maybe you will love it. You're not choosing it. You're just sort of drifting into it because everybody's like, oh, you should become a doctor. And you're like, well, rather than figure out what I really want, I'll just do what everybody else thinks I should do. That's just not a recipe for success over the long term. Oh, I, I totally get what you're saying because it's, you know, a similar thing happened to me that the very, the, I've done four degrees and the first one I did was definitely not my first choice. It was definitely something that my parents felt was a good option for me mm -hmm. as a woman. It landed up, I did it, I stayed in it, but I turned it around very, very quickly. I didn't do it in the traditional sense. I did extra degrees and I completely changed direction and moved, you know, into, into that joy, the happiness that you talk about, that satisfaction where if I'm relaxing, I'm reading brain research because that's right. relaxing. It's not. <laughs> You know, so that's right. You're fun. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's fun for me. So yeah, I get what you're saying, and it's it's just so important. I, I agree with you for people's mental health and happiness. It's a vital vital thing. I love the way you explain that, though. I'd never thought of it that way. It's really a great way of explaining it. Looking for the ideal on-the-go, super delicious, brain-boosting snack? Then you need to try Super Fat Nut Butters, my favorite go-to snack. Right now, I'm snacking on some apple slices with a super fat protein nut butter spread on top. Delicious. The healthy fats, carbs, and protein really help me stay focused, full, and 
and energized so I can power through hours of podcasting and research. Superfat Nut Butters are certified keto and paleo, ready to take your snack game to the next level. Well, Superfat is offering a special discount just for my listeners. Get 15% of your order when you use the code Dr. Leaf at checkout. Just go to superfat.com and use the code Dr. Leaf at checkout. The link will also be in the show notes. I also think that for people on the outside, like say you mentioned your parents, I think one thing to remember about when you're really trying to urge somebody to follow a path is that a lot of times what I see is they will invest time and energy. Like they'll go to graduate school, which is years of their life and a lot of money. And then they're like, oh, but I I really don't want to do this. And so they're worse than they would have been if they'd never gone because they lost the time and they've spent the money. I think when people from the outside, from the deepest love and wanting to protect somebody and help them, you might actually end up really hampering them because you take time out of their life where they could otherwise be exploring and figuring out what they want to do. And especially if it's costly, well, then there's nothing worse than somebody who pays to go to law school and then decides they don't want to be a lawyer because exactly. at least as a lawyer, you make a big salary and so you can pay down your debt. But if you're not a lawyer, there's a lot of people who are sort of like, indentured servants to their former selves because they went to law school for all the wrong reasons and now they can't afford not to be lawyers because it's the only way they can pay down their debt to go to law school, which they don't even want to be lawyers. It's like, why is this whole thing even happening? And often it's because, oh, my parents told me I should be a lawyer. And so, and I didn't know what else to do. So I went, so it's like, eh, be very careful when you try to intervene in somebody else's fate. That's my, that's one of my things. I, try I not love to- that. I love that. I think that that's, it's a, you've raised an incredibly valid point. And I think as parents, it's incredibly important that we don't do that to our kids. I've been, I've been so, with all four, I've been so focused on not telling them what to do in terms yeah. of degrees. Just go and do what you want. If you don't want to study, it's your choice. It's got to be your choice. It's, it's so important. So you raised such a valid point. Fantastic. You've met with some pretty amazing people like Oprah and Daniel Kahneman and Dalai Lama. Amazing. So what are some of the things you've noticed about these people that they do differently and which could be a reason maybe for their success? You know, what are some insights you've gained? Well, one of the things that I noticed about Oprah was that, so I was having a conversation with Oprah, which was kind of like an out-of-body experience, as you can imagine. Mm, I can. But one of the things that I noticed about Oprah is that she seemed genuinely curious about what I was saying, and she seemed like she was learning. Like, mm. I was like, came out of it thinking like, wow, like I gave Oprah new insights. And I realized wow, it is her attitude of like really opening herself up to like, am I taking this in? Am I allowing myself to be curious? Cause I mean, here you do tons of interviews. It's, you know, it's easy to like, kind of get into a state where you're just sort of managing the interview, but to stay open mm. and to stay curious and to allow yourself to kind of like rethink and to be like, wow, I have to kind of like process that or whatever. Now, I'm sure part of it is that she's just an amazing interviewer. So mm-hmm. she knew how to create that sense in me because that made me so much more engaged in talking to her. But I I don't think it was fake, I, you know. So that was one thing, which was mm-hmm. allow yourself. And I think as anybody doing research, I'm sure you think this too, like you have to allow yourself to be surprised. You have to allow yourself mm-hmm. to see something you didn't expect to see. I don't know about you, but I read books Mm -hmm. all the time and I'm like, this person did not see one thing. They set out to write a book about X and they didn't see anything 
that didn't conform with that idea. Exactly. There's mm. totally, and I'm like, if nothing surprises you, if nothing is like, this doesn't really make sense, or like, this is kind of like not what I would have thought. If nothing's unexpected, then I don't think you're really paying attention. And the thing about the Dalai Lama is, you know, he's famous for sort of his lightheartedness. Mm-hmm. And that really comes across. He just seems like he was in front of this gigantic crowd, didn't care. Like, whatever happened, he was just like, like he got rained on. It was fine. He dropped mm-hmm. something and everybody like, you know, around him was like, oh, my God. You know, he didn't care. Just sort of this lighthearted. Love this. Yeah. And then Danny Kahneman was just a brilliant talker. You know, he was just fascinating to listen to and very good at conveying very complex ideas in a very kind of clear and succinct way, which is why I think his book, Thinking Fast and Slow, was such a huge success, mm-hmm. even though it was like a tiny book about brain science, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But he's like, I like that book, but I'm surprised it's quite as popular as it is. But I think it's because he's so good at communicating ideas that are really, really powerful, but that maybe in someone else's hands, you wouldn't have really understood exactly what they were trying to communicate. (laughs) That's brilliant. Wow. That's so insightful. All three of those comments are just valuable, insightful. You have have a a tremendous ability to see things in a simple way and and convey that as well as a tip that can help people with their life. Because all the way through this interview, that's what I've been getting from you. So thank you. It's been amazing. I've so enjoyed it. I'd love to have you back on the podcast again. You've been amazing. So interesting. It's so fun to talk to you. I feel like we could talk. We're interested in all the same subjects. I think we could talk all day. I do. Definitely. (laughs) There's like this, like my head's just full of a million different questions and I could keep you for hours. So it's going to be fun to talk again. So thank you so much. Now, where can people find out more about you, your work, your podcast, your books? And obviously all this will be in the show notes as well. Yes, a great clearinghouse for everything is my website, GretchenRubin.com, where you can read about my books and read my blog posts. I have tons of resources there for happiness and good habits and all kinds of things. My podcast is called Happier with Gretchen Rubin. That's a weekly podcast all about how to be happier, which I do with my co-host, my sister, mm-hmm. um, Alyssa Craft. If you want to take my quiz, we briefly talked about the four tendencies mm-hmm. framework, whether people are upholders, questions, obligers, and rebels. There's a quiz, like a very quick free quiz, like two and a half million people have taken this quiz at wow. quiz.gretchenrubin.com, and that will tell you what tendency you are and kind of what the significance of that is if you're interested in the four tendencies. And then I'm all over social media at Gretchen Rubin. That's my name is my handle. And I love to engage with people. So if people have insights or observations or questions, I have way more material than anybody would ever want to go through. And I love to hear more from other people too. Oh, that's fantastic. Thank you so much. All that information will be in the show notes and it's been such a fun, interesting and insightful podcast interview. So thank you so much. Honestly, I really, really enjoyed it. Thank you. I, I so enjoyed it as well. Thank you so much. I hope you found today's podcast interesting and helpful. If you want more tips and help with managing anxiety, depression, and mental health, be sure to visit my website at drleaf.com and to sign up for my weekly newsletter where I also include a schedule of my speaking events and so much more. And follow me on social media. I'm on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Just look for Dr. Caroline Leaf. Also, I love seeing all your posts on social media about this podcast. I love seeing what resonates with you and what you've learned. So be sure to continue posting and tagging me and letting me know what you think and how these tips worked out for you. And don't forget, leave a review and keep spreading the word about this podcast. Thank you for joining me today. I really hope you learned something new and helpful. Till then, 
I'm Dr. Caroline Leaf. This podcast represents the opinions of myself and my guests. The content here should not be taken as medical advice. The content here is for educational and informational purposes only. Please consult your healthcare professional for any individual medical questions you may have. While we make every effort to ensure that the information we are sharing is accurate, we welcome any comments, suggestions or corrections of errors.